Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. So we're recording this a day before Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel. And we're joined today by a personal friend, rabbi and friend of JTV, Ken Spiro, who is an author, historian, rabbi. Um, most notably, he wrote a crash course in Jewish history, which you can get uh, on Amazon and online, as well as a few other fascinating books about Jewish history. Uh, Rabbi Ken Spiro, thank you so much for joining us um, via uh, online link from New York. Um, so I want to just jump right into talking about anti-Semitism generally, and also we'll talk about the Holocaust specifically. Um, I try to make JTV a positive and uplifting channel, and there's so much to Judaism beyond the challenges and persecution we've suffered, even though, of course, I think we need to talk about them. Um, but at, at the same time, there's there's such a, you know, anti-Semitism isn't just tragic and painful uh, as it is. And, you know, I remember when I went to visit Poland, I mean, I, I was in such a somber state afterwards for a very long time, just the reality of the Shoah of the Holocaust became so much more clear and, and present to me. I mean, you know, we kind of learn about it in schools and read it in textbooks, but when you're actually there, it's like, oh my God, this is, this really happened. And it's so recent, 75 years ago, my grandparents were alive when, you know, I think about um, the film, The Wizard of Oz was filmed in the thirties, something that we relate to as kids and watch growing up, or Snow White, that was before the Holocaust. Um, so that we think it's some ancient civilizational past where it occurred. It's recent. Um, so, but, you know, as well as it being, what I wanted to say was as well as it being tragic, it's also fascinating and mysterious anti-Semitism. Um, and I want to, I want to first hear from you what it is that makes it fascinating and, 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 and unique, a unique kind of hatred in, in, in world history. Um, and, would you agree that as someone that studied not only history but other historians um most objective historians anyone that looks at jewish history objectively takes a look at anti-semitism and is is baffled and perplexed right well first of all thanks for having me on your show uh absolutely you know and jewish history the ups and the downs the highs and the lows are all kind of supernatural um you know, there's a great line from David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, who was very far from being an observant Jew, but he said, to be a realist as a Jew, you have to believe in miracles. And uh, the problem, I always say, the problem with looking at Jewish history in general is when you're in it as a Jew, if, if supernatural happens to you every day, it just becomes natural and normal. But you're right, if you stand back objectively, look at Jewish history and compare it to, you know, other people's histories, you see there's really... The highs and the lows are very different from anyone else. We are like the exception in history that proves the rule. And you, you, you started asking that question about, you know, what makes anti-Semitism unique? We don't have a monopoly on hatred and racism and, and oppression. There's, unfortunately, that, that's, an, that's a eternal feature of all of human history of one group oppressing another, but there are aspects of anti-Semitism that just set it apart from any other kind of hatred. And, um, when you look at them all together, you really, it's like, it's like a wow. Like you said, when you're in Poland, it's like a wow. When you really stand back and look at it, we just take for granted, of course, everyone's going to hate us. You know, there was a Harvard math professor by the name of Tom Lair in the 1960s who uh, used to write very funny satirical songs. And he had a song called National Brotherhood Week. 
um, which is a week in America where supposedly everyone's supposed to get along for a week because America is the melting pot. It's just one giant mix of all different kinds of immigrant populations. And it has, you know, verse the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and it's been everyone hates the Jews. So groups hate each other, but one of the things that seems to unify the world, it's not that everyone in the world's an anti-Semite, but anti-Semitism is the most like universal hatred in human history. Wherever we've gone in any significant numbers for any extended period of time, anti-Semitism is followed. It's not related to our relationship with one group of people, one country, one religion, one nationality, one racial group. So that's one aspect, the universality. The other thing is the intensity of it. Um, you know, that it's not just, that the word anti-Semitism was coined, the phrase was coined by a German Jew hater by the name of Wilhelm Marr in 1879, someone who Hitler based much of his thinking on in a book he wrote. Uh, called The Victory of Germandom Over Judaism. This was when racial thinking was starting to appear after Darwinian evolution. And he wanted to make hatred of Jews sound um, more, more uh, scientific and, and, and uh, not, less, not so much a religious thing and racial. So he coins this phrase anti-Semitism, which means prejudice or hostility towards Jews and Jews alone. And what's interesting about it is until today, it remains really like the only form of racial or religious intolerance that has its own word to describe it. And if you hate a black person, you're a racist. You hate an Asian, you're a racist. You know, you hate a Christian, there's no word for it, but only Jew hate has to have its own word to describe it. But the second aspect that sets it apart is, you know, it's not just prejudice or hostility. If the worst thing we Jews had to suffer through was, you know, some people making jokes about us and some low level discrimination, not being able to get into a few country clubs or hospitals, universities, which was what anti-Semitism was in places like America before the Holocaust, that wouldn't be so bad. But we see that it's the most intense hatred in human history. It's one unendingly long list of persecution, expulsion, physical and economic marginalization, ghettoization, rape, pillage, beating up to, you know, trying to wipe us out completely, genocide. And even that word, Ali, is very interesting. It was invented, it was created by a, a Polish Jewish refugee, Dr. Rafael Lemkin in 1944, who was the father of the idea of crimes against humanity and international law. You know, he flees from Poland during the war. He says, there's a crime happening in Europe. There's no word to describe. And he, he creates this word genocide. So we have the universality of it, the intensity of it. The, the third thing it sets it apart is the longevity. It's the oldest recorded hatred in human history. I know when Thames Television in England did a series on anti-Semitism many decades ago, it was entitled Anti-Semitism, The Longest Hatred, because it's the longest continuous recorded hatred in human history. And the last thing it sets it apart is the irrationality of it that you know, we're accused of anything and everything. We kidnap Christian babies, use their blood to bake matzo, we poison wells, we're in league with the devil, we control the world's economy, seismic activities, solar flares, we trigger tsunamis in Southeast Asia to drown Indonesia with tidal waves, release sharks into the Red Sea to destroy Egyptian tourism, send vultures to spy on Saudi Arabia. Like two years ago, Iran accused us of stealing their cloud cover. I always jokingly say, you know, we laugh at it, but it's not funny, it's crazy. But I always say, if people believed even 10% of what they say about us, no one would mess with us. Would you mess with people who control the weather, the animal kingdom, the, you know, the, the governments, banks, you know, they basically run the world. But it's Professor Michael Curtis, actually he's also a British professor, but working at Rutgers, he had a great line. He said, anything and everything is a reason to hate the Jew, whatever you hate the Jew is that. And so you put it together, universality, intensity, longevity, irrationality, you have a hatred that is unlike any other hatred on the planet Earth. And that's what really sets it apart. 
And so then the next question becomes how historians have tried to explain this. Um, and a bunch of theories have been proposed um, throughout um, you know, times that historians have analysed uh, Jewish history. Can you explain those theories and why you think none of them really stack up? Well, there's really not... You know, some people try and take the normal approach that it were just like the ethnic minority. And there's some level of truth to these things. We've always, in many places like medieval Europe, we were the only other. It hasn't been really safe for Jews. I always say for Jews, if you know, you should live in Israel, but if you're going to live in diaspora, you want to live in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious country, because then there's many groups of people. When we were like in Christian Europe a thousand years ago, the only other group, we're going to always naturally be the target because the, the basic reason for all hatred is dislike of the different. You know, when we Jews generally chose to look, dress, act and live differently. We had a different day of worship, we had different appearance, different kosher food, you name it. We separating ourselves out and that would engender a certain level of hostility. So people often like to explain it using those that term. The problem is, is even when we become just like the non-Jews, normally if you become like the, the majority culture, you eventually merge, you assimilate, and you disappear. The irony, one of the other really interesting, unique aspects of anti-Semitism is the greatest explosions of anti-Semitism have often taken place in places where we're most like the non-Jews, not most different from them. Like in Germany, no one was more German than German Jews. And then along comes Hitler and says, the most dangerous kind of Jew is the Jews trying to mix with us. He's going to pollute our blood. So it's like checkmate. It's also supernatural. But those kind of standard classical explanations don't really work when you rigorously look at them and run them through the lab of human history. And people often explain, like the ones I hear is like, it's just, uh, uh, and it's a sickness. It's, it's just irrational. The problem with that is, you know, you can't claim all of humanity is mentally ill. Um, you, it's irrational. Okay, so Jews have, spent a long time, Jews have spent a long time in history apologizing and trying to explain they were not so bad. But no matter what we do, it doesn't go away. And none of the classical explanations that would normally explain racial or religious intolerance, when you really rigorously look at them and run them through Jewish history and human history, they don't really answer it. And a lot of people just throw up their hands and say, you know, anti-Semitism. Well, no, we just gotta try and get the world to get along and love us and realize we don't do horrible things. The problem with that is, is that's not an answer. It's like a doctor, a guy who's sick and he has a chronic illness and they keep running tests on him and they can't figure out what's wrong. You know, they, it's like saying, take aspirin, at least you won't have a headache, but you're still sick. It doesn't get rid of the problem and it's not really an answer. So we're kind of left dangling with what's really causing anti-Semitism. Right. And uh, I know when you've spoken about this and, and, and had a bit more time and to, to delve into it, you know, you've just to give our audience some, some examples of those classical theories, you know, like one that Jews have uh, more economic power. But then, you know, what about Jews who are living in Eastern Europe or who had no uh, political power and were poor or like Jews killed Jesus? Yeah, but, you know, the, the New Testament doesn't even necessarily hold them uh, accountable. And what about uh, hatred from non-Christians, etc. Um, and, and so on. Um, but then the question becomes, okay, so what, what, what is the reason? What, or what, you know, what, what theories would you like to posit um, is something that can, can explain it? And, and also, uh, just, just before you answer that, could it, could it not be possible that each reason given for hating the Jews was just unique to each circumstance? So in the case of when Jews do well in society, yeah, it is down to just um, envy or whatever. And when, Jew, you know, in the case of Jews killing 
uh, of being having the claim that they had some role in uh, the killing of uh, Jesus. The yeah, that's what was going on in that case, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that in any way viable? Yeah. So, well, you know, if you, you started out by pointing out an interesting thing that we are accused of things that are it's an un, it's an endless list. We're capitalist, communist, warlike, passive, different, the same, strong, weak, rich, poor, dominant, lazy, servile, aggressive. You know, first of all, you can't you could say, OK, so in this case, they were rich. In this case, they were poor. The problem is you don't see that anywhere else, no matter what circumstance we're in. We can't escape it. So clearly it can't be that. You have to always point to one thing. When you look at why one group hates another, like you look at why like some white supremacists in America don't like black people, they will always focus on three or four things about black people that they're gonna hyper-focus on. Obviously they're based on lies, misrepresentations of truth, but they're always gonna focus on that. What's unique about it is it can't be all of these things because too many excuses means there's no cause. So while there might be elements of truth to it we find like jews today are, are mostly assimilated but very disproportionately involved in in um, let's say media and hollywood and the movie business and things like that's true but these are um people who are completely disconnected from judaism are not using if you if you saw that jews were working in some sort of concerted way to push some sort of agenda on the world maybe you could say that but these jews who are most influential in the world are generally jews who are pushing agendas that have nothing to do with judaism they're just driven people who are successful and they're not working in consort you know to like somehow take over the world but if you the point is if you if you look at any of these objectively you see they're just there's no basis to them you know, no matter what state we're in, they always come after us. Whatever, any shape we change ourselves into, the excuse just changes and says, oh, now you're like that, I'll hate you because of that. And anyone logically looking at it would realize that's really not the cause. So like you said, like you asked, we have to go a little deeper. And um, Judaism has an understanding of what drives anti-Semitism itself, um, which we understand is has to do very much with the Jewish people. Because one of the most interesting aspects of supposed uh, the reasons for hating Jews is very few of them have to do with Judaism. There's a very little Jewish about hating Jews. You know, capitalist, communist, warlike, passive, different, the same, strong, weak, those are not Jewish traits. What Judaism would say is really when you push all of the excuses aside, uh, bottom line, what ultimately drives it, even subliminally in the collective conscience of humanity are much deeper things that have to do with who we are as a people and what we're supposed to accomplish in this world. And so to understand that, so you have to understand what our mission has been in history, um, which in itself is a great discussion. But bottom line is the uniqueness of the Jewish people beginning with Abraham is that in a world that is remarkably amoral and very brutal and callous thousands of years ago and was completely polytheistic with everyone believing in multiple gods, along comes this one man, Abraham, who radical transformative super genius thinking outside the box is able to connect to a completely counterintuitive idea of an infinite invisible being, God, this one God, Everything else is an illusion and not really there. And a being that gives humanity one absolute standard of morality. That, you know, and that is, I think Dennis Prager may have coined the phrase ethical monotheism. The notion of one God who gives one standard of morality that is not subject to what, what the majority wants, what is expedient, what is the, you know, the ancient world was a brutal, brutal place. Infanticide, killing of newborn babies for population control and sex selection was universal blood sport, inequality, injustice. These were, these were aspects of even the most technologically culture, culturally sophisticated civilizations of the ancient world. Because we think there's a connection between culture and technology, 
and, and law and order and morality. There's no connection in human history. Some of the most technologically, culturally, and law and order societies in human history have been the most brutal, whether it's ancient Rome or Nazi Germany. The really transformative idea the Jews brought into the world is that all the illusions aside, all the nonsense of polytheism aside, there's one infinite being who gives one standard of morality to all of humanity. And that's absolute, you can't mess with that. And what we've been doing since the time of Abraham has been dragging the world, kicking and screaming towards that vision of morality and one God and trying to connect humanity to God. That's really the Jewish people's job, the God squad, as I call ourselves. And anti-Semitism, regardless of what excuse it hides behind, and a lot of the people, the masses believe these excuses, by the way. You know, that does, just because they're not true doesn't mean people don't believe them. Like I said, all stereotypes about groups of people or individuals, but like a doctor who's trying to really diagnose, you can be distracted by the symptoms, like the sores on the skin, but the real disease is inside. Everyone's been mistreating and misdirecting. So, but when we, when we clear all that aside, this is the driving cause. The way I would say it is we've been dragging humanity, kicking and screaming towards a vision of values and, and creating a world based on relationship with this one God and anti-Semitism, regardless of whatever excuse it hides behind on its deepest level is always a rebellion against the national historic mission of the Jewish people. Even someone like Hitler sees it beautifully. Hitler has, a, has some amazing quotes. He's, you know, I know it's weird to quoting Hitler about Jews, but sometimes the people that hate us the most understand us the best. That makes sense because they understand what the real Jewish threat is. And Hitler says that the Jews put two scars on humanity, conscience on the soul and circumcision on the body, and both are inventions of the Jew. And that is one of the greatest backhanded compliments ever given to the Jewish people. We gave humanity a conscience. And whenever evil has come into the world, because we would define evil as the antithesis of those God-given values, it's always going to target the source of those values, which is God, but you can't go attack God. So it's gonna attack the people who are trying to, supposed to be representing these values to humanity, which explains why evil always has dictators and things almost always have their you know, crosshairs on the Jewish people first. Hitler starts with the Jews, then he spreads everywhere else. And why evil nations like Iran and North Korea are always gonna target the Jewish state. Evil targets Jews because even on a subliminal level is a recognition that ultimately what this is really all about, even though a lot of Jews don't even get this and aren't representing the Jewish people, is that it is a rebellion against that national historic mission that we've had for 3,700 years. Okay, so I want to ask two questions on what you just said. If that's the case, why do we sometimes see anti-Semitism come from people who do believe in one God, who do believe in uh you know moral account accountability from god even believe in maybe some of the key you know some of if if, if anti-semitism ever came from people who practice the muslim or or christian faith uh they accept many of the premises that uh, of judaism that you know the ten commandments etc so how number one how would you explain that and number two if that's what's really going on at a subconscious level um it's rebellion against this sort of um godly accountability and morality message um, why is there anti-Semitism against, let's say, Jews who are totally non-practicing um, and but are not in, are in no ways really pushing the messages of Judaism? Two excellent, excellent questions. Um, I'm going to just tell you on my mind the first one you asked me. 
The first one was about do it, people who do accept. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's a that's a great question because you think, okay, I understand why the pagan world would be so uh, anti-Jewish because their worldview came from an, this pagan ideology and it was basically decided by human beings or a perception of what the gods who aren't even real wanted. But how do you explain Christians and Muslims? They believe in one God. There's a lot of similarities. Um, I always, by the way, say when I'm explaining Christianity and Islam, which is sort of Maimonides, the great medieval uh, Jewish rabbi, philosopher, scholar, doctor, uh, he basically, he, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says it's basically two steps forward, one step backward. That the great impact of Christianity and 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 Islam on 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 humanity's collective conscious was basically eliminating amoral polytheism from much of the world and accepting the idea of one God, you know, because any believing Christian or Muslim, you know, there's one God, there's one standard of morality, he created the world, he gave the Jewish people the Torah at Mount Sinai, but then he changed his mind and chose us instead. So now, so part of that resentment comes from and hostility comes from the notion of a replacement theology idea. But it also comes from the fact that just believe, just accepting one God, it's like, it's easy to come off the tongue, but Judaism doesn't say you gotta believe one God and one standard of morality. Judaism has a very complex system of laws, uh, 613 commandments. It even gives to non-Jews uh, a system of seven commandments, which are actually more complicated than just seven called Noahide laws, which is sort of like Judaism light. And unless, the, unless those nations, even if they pay lip service to the idea of one God, buy into the practical application of that and the details of it, um, it's, not, it's not only not going to necessarily make the world a better place, it's going to make, it's, it's, it can even increase hostility towards us because you have people paying lip service to one God, but not actually acting in that way. And not only that, viewing us at, or our continued existence as some sort of a contradiction or, or, or you know, to their claims of that, that they, they replaced us in human history. So the two ideas kind of work in consort together to create a continued atmosphere where you actually have often more hostility coming from places like Christian medieval Europe. But you have to also appreciate going a little deeper, Ali, that um, it's precisely because they didn't translate the beliefs into practical practice that they didn't actually, it was like a veneer, like a coating on the outer layer of the skin of nice ideas, but believe, beneath it, all the garbage is still there. It's like sp spraying air freshener in a garbage dump. It smells sort of nice, but the garbage is still there. What's interesting is when you look at, for instance, a great example is the evangelical Christian community that actually finally takes the Bible super seriously. They really do believe it's the word of God. When, you know, when God says to Jewish, you know, God says to Abraham in Genesis, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And you listen to, and I work a lot with evangelical Christians. They truly believe that God is going to judge them by how they treat us. And these are the first group of Christians that I can think of in history. There've been a few individuals throughout history for hundreds of years, but the first group as a group that not only uh, acts, I would say in general, very morally, but also is extremely supportive of Jews and Israel because they have aligned themselves much closer to, you know, the, the, the Jewish worldview, this idea of that we are, you know, God is the God of all humanity, but we have a unique role to play in the story. And our job is not to conquer, not to convert, but to be the role model to lead the world back to God. And these, this group of Christians specifically sees, sees us in the proper light. And therefore, unlike 
earlier groups like medieval Europe, which was incredibly violent and nasty towards Jews, or radical Islam. Um, this is, these are groups that actually are extremely supportive and back us and don't try and denigrate us or deny that we have a role to play in the story. So that is definitely uh, part of the explanation. And you asked me something else. What was the second? Well, the second was that what about Jews, Jew, Jewish people who live in societies and they themselves have no interest in um, identifying with Judaism? Why would an anti-Semite be bothered by that if that's what's going on at a subconscious level? Because I, I would say on most people's minds subconsciously, Jews, they recognize there's something Jew, Jewish about Jews who even disconnected Jewishly. When you look at these kind of Jews, as a Jew, I look at them and you see how Jewish they are. You look at a guy like a Bernie Sanders, for instance, who's a socialist, but he's so Jewish, a Woody Allen. These people may not be observant Jews. They may not know anything about Judaism, but, but Judaism would say that Jews have a unique kind of uh, drive that we inherit from Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah going back thousands of years ago. And there are certain traits. I have a whole presentation on this called Driven, where I talk just about how even Jews without the Jewish, the Torah software, as we say it, still manifest these Jewish traits, radically transformative thinking, incredible drive and caring. And you can, you can demonstrate this so clearly. So the true clear thinking hater of the Jew uh, understands that these traits are innate in who Jews are and therefore just going after, let's say the religious Jews or the, the Torah or something like that is not enough. Hitler himself says, you know, even if there'd never been a Jewish school or a synagogue with the Old Testament, the Jewish spirit would still exist and exert its influence. It has been there from the very beginning and there is no Jew, not a single one, who does not personify it. And he goes on to call the Jews the Belzenhard, which is Basilicus or bacteria, virus, which we now appreciate viruses. The whole world gets that one. You know, if you let, uh, if you let one Jew survive, even a disconnected Jew with his unique Jewish soul personality, he'll be a super spreader. He's gonna somehow create some offshoot movement that is based on Jewish worldview, that is antithetical to me, dictator, guy who wants to change the world, my worldview. And therefore it's not enough to go after the rabbis and the synagogues and the day schools. Every single Jew has to be eliminated. And the real true people who understand what Judaism are about in terms of the anti-Semites are the ones who are the most uncompromising coming after us because they recognize this fact. And I know it's, it sounds kind of weird and funky, but I mean, Hitler himself says it openly and Judaism agrees with that. That's what's really interesting. I always say a guy like Hitler is not evil because of his understanding of the Jewish people. He understands Jews actually remarkably well. Um, he's evil because of his reaction to the understanding. And that's what makes him evil. And to understand that you can't look at Mein Kampf, which is a propaganda book for the masses. You have to look at like the books that are written about conversations Hitler has with people like Martin Bormann, his personal secretary, Hitler Speaks, Hitler's Table Talk, these kind of books. Then you get into his mind and you really see that he understands this point, that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Even if he's baptized a hundred times, he gets really wet, but he's always Jewish and he's always going to push that Jewish agenda on the world. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I often say to people that, you know, the Nazis took the Jews and Judaism very, very seriously you know Adolf Eichmann like going to learn Hebrew and all the rest of it uh it was just about they had a reaction to it they just said we hate this it's not they didn't understand it it's not they were it was a mad irrationality it was uh it was just a, a deep deep opposition to the Jewish people's mission um could you, if I can, if I, sure. I just add a comment to that 
That's true, but on the highest level, the, the, the German propaganda, if you look at it, is not based on, Hitler doesn't get up and say the Jew represents morality maps. He, he says the Jew, he, 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 he played up on the racial theory stuff and Jews are inferior and he, he played up on the Jewish control and they triggered World War I, they destroyed Germany, they're trying to destroy the world, but he, very few people will openly direct this to the masses. It's way too sophisticated and profound an idea that you don't want to market to masses to, to galvanize hatred. So while he may have understood it and his inner circle may have understood it, he doesn't, he's not branding anti-Semitism precisely in that language. And was, was Hitler a believer in, in, in God? Was he religious? Was he a, a, a pagan? Uh, I, I don't, what, is, there, is there a conclusive view on this? Yeah, well, first of all, Hitler, by the way, I have quotes of Hitler talking about how Islam would have been so much better suited. Hitler hated Christianity. He just didn't survive long enough to go after the church. I have multiple quotes of Hitler who met with the Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj al-Mina Husseini. Um, he's a big, they, 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 they like each other very much. Um, and uh, talking about how Islam with its idea of jihad and with its very physical idea of heaven, the 72 virgin thing, it's kind of like Valhalla. If you know Viking Teutonic stuff, which the Germans are really into, where after you die, you go to this big hall and you fight and you drink and you have a party your whole rest of your life. He said the Islamic idea of heaven fits much better with the German personality and the idea of jihad you know, this aggressive conquest thing would fit much better with the German personality. It's a scary thought. Jihadi German Nazis would have been really scary. He hated Christianity, hated, hated, hated it. And the, to answer the best answer to your question is the words of the Hitler Youth song, which every kid in Germany is singing from 1933 to 1935, 1945, excuse me. And I hold the last seven words of that song are the seven most important words to not only understand the Holocaust, but to understand really all of anti-Semitism. And the English translation of the song is, we are the joyous Hitler youth. We don't need any Christian virtue. Our leader is our savior, meaning Hitler. The Pope and rabbi shall be gone. We want to be pagans once again. And Hitler viewed the Jews and the Jewish ideas as a, as a human concept, which was not natural, which was going to destroy the world. Nature is brutal, but nature is balanced. The strong survive, the weak are lunch. That's how it works in the animal kingdom. That's how empires worked in the ancient world. There was no mercy. There was no respect for borders. But that kept the world strong. He said the Jew is actually destroying the world. And it's interesting, by the way, that evil people, unlike Hollywood likes to portray them as dark and black and evil and wanting to do damage, evil people are always very confident that they're trying to save the world. But was he? It's a was great, yeah. Sorry, go for it, go for it. Go for no, no, it. H.L. Mencken, who's an American writer, curmudgeon in the beginning of the 20th century, has a great line. He says, the urge to fix the world is almost always a false face to rule it. And that's really Hitler at his best. Yeah, yeah. And wow, that's a very powerful quote. Um, was Hitler though, I mean, I know he sometimes referenced God in some of his speeches, but do we know whether he was an atheist or, or a believer? Well, he talks, about, he talks about providence a lot, you know, like providence, a force. I don't, you know, from what I know of Hitler, I would not say he was, I would, he seems to be openly by his own admissions, basically a pagan that he believed in a spiritual force, that he believed in destiny, that, he, that his role in history was to be the savior of humanity. But I would, it doesn't seem to be from what I've known of Hitler, even if he may have paid lip service for the sake of expedience, you know, because Germany was a Christian country. Um, but his, all the things I've seen about him is in his heart, he was very clearly a, a real hardcore pagan in his, in his worldview. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so the points he was saying about Islam 
weren't necessarily about Islam, uh, you know, theological beliefs. It was just a few uh, particular things that he thought he could uh, w could harness for his own political ideological ends. It was probably expedient, probably a lot to do with expedience. Again, I haven't done extensive research on his relationship to that, but he says, if you're going to give some sort of monotheistic faith to the world, the Islamic one at least fits more close to his pagan worldview in terms of the world to come. And the, ex you know, he had, his has a, you know, there's a quote about Hitler saying that, you know, the only thing that, that uh, he says, he says, he said the only thing that, that, that Christianity added to Judaism was turn the other cheek and Christians are the last people to actually follow that. He viewed the idea of, you know, like being passive and loving your enemy. These were antithetical to his worldview. He was a militarist and very belligerent and the Christian idea of, you know, love and, you know, someone slaps you, give them the other cheek and they can slap that side. He hated that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, right. so I think probably I would say he, he would have rather, he really liked, like, he loved Wagner. He loved the Teutonic stuff that, you know, the ancient German and Nordic legends. He loved the Roman empire. Even if you look at all the images, the, the standards used by the Nazi army, the whole imaging is very classical Roman, pre-pagan, pre-monotheism, pre pre-Christianity. That's what his image was. Return the world to the great pagan empires of the ancient world. The expansionist, you know, the strong survivor, we're going to conquer the world and have a thousand year Reich. And all these monotheistic ideas are going to just stand in the way of that vision. Now, how does this whole discussion about anti-Semitism feed into what's happening with Israel today, Zionism and anti-Zionism? So, you know, it's just, I always say that um, Israel bashing is the final form that anti-Semitism is taking in human history. Because by the way, anti-Semitism always has a sort of silver lining in it. And insofar as I always say, even with the Holocaust, if there's any silver lining that came out of the Holocaust, because I know it sounds kind of harsh and cynical, but the world prefers us as victims, not victors. And there's a certain algorithm I got to work out about how many Jews are killed and suffer, how much sympathy we get from the world, which has a, which has a shelf life. So, I, you know, you saw in the Intifada when, you know, in 2000, you know, 17 Jews killed and 150 wounded in a bombing in a pizzeria. So, uh, you know, for, for 10 days, Israel is allowed to defend itself and the world goes back to bashing it. Six million Jews dying in the Holocaust created enough sympathy in the world to allow the world, the United Nations, to come together and vote November 29, 1947, 33 to 13, with 10 abstentions to partition Palestine. Um, so, but that's kind of worn off. So it gave us, it, the silver lining in that is, it, it wore off. And even, and, and the other thing, I know it sounds weird, but like the fact that anti-Semitism, the greatest explosions of anti-Semitism take place in places where Jews are most comfortable, which is counterintuitive and not normal because the more like the majority, the less we should be aided. It's in my mind, almost as if we're being told from up above, your role in history is way too important. You cannot be allowed to disappear because if you disappear, the world's gonna go back to darkness. So one way or another, if you're not gonna willingly choose to do it, if you choose to opt out, sorry, when we hit a certain, I don't know, threshold, boom, precisely from where we least expect it, we're gonna get it because it, it has the side benefit. Look what's going on in Ukraine today. The way I view it is that God is basically shutting down the diaspora, country by country and continent by continent. You know, we had the great wave of immigration from the Soviet Union with the collapse in 1989. And now we're finishing that process. Now Europe is closing down for Jews. The anti-Semitism is going up. Um, so we see there's a process of boom, 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 boom. And the Israel bashing 
even though it seems contradictory if God wants the Jews to come back to the land of Israel, then why is he bashing Israel? People are going to be afraid to come because it's dangerous. Um, it's, it's just, it, 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 the real message behind it is, is that it has nothing to do with Israel. And we always see huge spikes in anti-Semitism around the world. I remember in May of last year, uh, when they had that short little Gaza war for a few days, you had, you're from London, you had cars driving through Golders Green, the Jewish part of London with people on loudspeakers, Muslims screaming, Arabs screaming, you know, kill the Jews and rape their women. This is 2021 in London. So it's just no matter, so we can never get distracted by thinking it has anything to do with what Israel is doing. After a few minutes of yelling and screaming about Israel, it always morphs into open anti-Semitism. And even in Israel, the Palestinians, they don't talk about Israelis. It's always Yehud, it's always Jew, Jew, Jew. So what we might think, oh, it has something to do with Israel's relationship with the Palestinians, and it's a separate thing and separate from anti-Semitism. I always say one of the few things that seems to unite the world today, even very opposite groups like radical Islam with the extreme left, which should have nothing in common with each other because their ideologies are so different. You know, yet the one thing, and I've even seen it again in England, I saw it on Manchester University campus probably like 15 years ago, where the student union got together and went after first the Israeli, the Zionist organizations, then tried to go after the Jewish societies. And it was, you know, radical leftists and, and you know, radical Muslims together on the one issue they can agree upon is they have very different ideologies, but the one thing that united them was they had a tremendous hostility towards, towards Israel and the Jewish people on a certain level. Yeah. So just lastly, before we finish, I want to quickly go back to that point you made earlier about the Jewish personality. In other words, regardless of whether one is practicing or not practicing, there are certain things that crop up again and again throughout Jewish history within the, the, the Jewish characteristics. Um, and you said that goes back to Abraham and Sarah. Can you just elaborate a bit on what, what you mean by that, how that works and how this is manifested throughout history? Right. So again, this, the short version of that is, you know, we have idea of physical genetics, which you can measure in a microscope that, you know, all original nations today, the world is a melting pot, like America, it's a mushmash, but the idea, and this is anthropologically true. And also from the Jewish perspective, the original nations were large extended families that had biological connections going back to two people had children, had children, had children, a small group of people became a large nation. Now it's all mixed up. Um, but Judaism, because we're not just, we're not, we're not a race because anyone can join. We have, and a lot of people have left the Jewish people and people have joined the Jewish people. Our origins are, even though we're scattered around the world in different places, we're a nation living large, still largely in exile, many of us in diaspora. Um, but we have common origins and Judaism would, Judaism says that there are certain traits just as there's DNA and you can check mitochondria and Y chromosomal connection going back to the original people. So too Judaism says, it's an idea in Jewish thought that the traits that Abraham and Sarah have uh, are passed down to the Jewish people. Non-Jews can have these traits also, but Jews have them disproportionately. And those traits are like Abraham, radically transformative thinker to think outside the box when everyone's worshiping idols and connect to a counterintuitive, infinite, invisible being that's radical. Like Jonathan Sachs wrote this great book, Radical Then, Radical Now. Jews are always disproportionately radical. To push radically transformative ideas on the world, to want truth regardless of consequences, you got to have a lot of drive, a lot of chutzpah, which is a very Jewish word, you know, gumption, tenacity, spunk. You know? So Jews are incredibly driven people. Um, 
Non-Jews can be driven too, but Jews are disproportionately driven. And the last thing is, is Abraham's original idea of connecting people to God was through kindness, emulating the Almighty. The word in Hebrew is chesed. And, and we see Jews today are disproportionately focused on that. And again, non-Jews can be too, but you know, to make a very long story short, you cannot look at this spiritual genetics in a microscope like, like you can look at your Y chromosome or your mitochondria, but statistically it stands out like a flashing red light. The fact that Jews are 0.2% of the world's population, but have 22% of all the Nobel Prizes since 1901, which is 11,500% more than we should have, 24% of the Fields Medals of Mathematics, you know, that kind of stuff. The fact that any cause shows that, that shows Jewish drive over accomplishment, disproportionate over accomplishment. The fact that um, if you take any cause to make the world a better place, speaking about caring, communism, any political ideology to try and top down fix the world, communism, socialism, feminism, black civil rights, anti-apartheid, doctors without borders, human rights watch, Amnesty International, even non-Jewish causes like the Salvation Army founded by, you know, an Anglican minister named William Booth, whose mother was a Jew from Nottingham, England, Jews always trying to fix the world, social justice. And so you got, so you have the caring, the radically transformative, and, and Jews are always in the forefront of all transformative movements in human history. So, I mean, I ran through that very quickly. And by the way, it, it, you find this, uh, just because I don't want people to misconstrue this, on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, you find revolutionary, whether it's, you know, you mentioned some of the things happening like communism and socialism, but also some of the big, uh, you know, movements of conservatism, capitalism, think about like thinkers like uh, Milton Friedman, the great capitalist thinker. Um, Schumacher, absolutely. Right. Yeah, it's not, it, 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 so we're not necessarily saying, you know, these, these traits you're speaking of, um, you know, radical chutzpah, ra ra radical transformation, caring about, you know, the world and, tra and, and tra changing it, they don't always necessarily manifest in a way that's um, uh, positive or, or within Torah thought. In other words, they're traits that can be used in positive ways, negative ways, but they're just neutral traits, really. Yeah, a hundred percent. They can be, when Jews do, Jews can do great good and be disproportionately impactful. They can do great bad. The biggest financial scandals, Michael Milstein, Ivan Bosky, you know, Bernie Madoff, you get, you have organized crime, Meyer Lansky, only Jews organized crime. Everyone else has disorganized crime. Um, so it's not, it's not, it's a neutral thing. I always, I always say Jews are like a rocket ship. A rocket ship is a, the most powerful machine on the planet. And it could be a force for great good, send a, send a person to the moon, send a satellite into space, or it could launch an intercontinental ballistic you know, you know, missile. And, and so that's the Jew. He's without, and he needs, a rocket ship needs fuel, a guidance system, and a payload. Isn't there a, isn't there a quote in the Talmud that says, without the Torah, the Jewish people could yeah. destroy the world? The, the world. Talmud in Beitzah says, if Jews didn't have Torah, they destroy the world. Some of the most destructive ideas, communism, Marx was not a destructive, Person. He was a misguided Jew whose family converted to Christianity, but he still has that Jewish soul. Um, it's a whole topic about why Jews are so into, in general, progressive political ideologies. This is a great discussion, by the way, and it very much has to do with the Jewish personality. But we are like a raw force in history. But without that, those Jewish values that come from Torah, which A, keep us Jewish. When Jews leave those behind, they assimilate after three to five generations. When Jews leave those behind, they don't know where to direct that drive. It's every ism they could think of, often isms that are antithetical to Judaism. I always say we have Jews for every ism but Judaism. And, and uh, you know, and so it's, it's in, in every way, it's our guidance system, it's our payload, it's our fuel. Jews with Judaism, it's a great combination. It keeps Jews Jewish, it keeps the drive under control and direct in the right direction. It makes the Jewish people incredibly transformative force in human history. 
And it, it's just a win-win combination. And Jews for Judaism make excellent role models who are doing it correctly for the human race. And God knows humanity needs some good role models today. And that's really going back to what we started out with. That is ultimately our job in this world, to be this light to nations, to live and act in a way that inspires people to want to connect the big guy upstairs who's the God of all humanity. So what, so what, so to finish, what's the cure for anti-Semitism? Ah, perfect. So Rav Chaim of Elushin said it the best. He was a rabbi who lived in the beginning of the 19th century. Sometimes the shortest quotes are the best ones. He says, when Jews don't make Kiddush, Gentiles make Abdallah. And he, Kiddush is the ceremony we make on Friday night or on the Sabbath, that higher spiritual day we enter with a cup of wine. Abdallah is a ceremony we make at the end of the Sabbath when we go down to a lower level. Rav Chaim of Elushin wasn't talking literally about making Kiddush on a cup of wine on Friday night. He was talking about the national historic mission of the Jewish people to do what's called Kiddush Hashem, to live and act in a way individually and collectively that inspires the world. If we, the Jewish people, don't fill the world with those values, you know, it's a great, it's a great principle of physics. Nature abhors a vacuum. Vacuums will be filled by something. When if, 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 if the vacuum of values is sitting there empty and we don't fill it with the values that come from the big guy upstairs, which are the most transformative ideas in human history, the ideas of you know, value of life, peace, social responsibility, equal justice, this all comes from directly or indirectly from one God in Judaism to the world. If we don't fill the world with those values, the world's going to be full of the opposite values. Those opposite values are what we would call evil in an absolute sense. And when evil comes into the world, it will target us first. So we could spend a lot of money making Holocaust memorials and explaining to the world we don't do all of these things and anti-defamation leagues and, and synagogue security. But until we treat the root cause, which is to proactively finish the mission that Abraham started 3,700 years ago, the world is not going to leave the Jewish people alone, is not going to leave the Jewish state alone. And I know it sounds like the impossible dream. You know, look at how, look at the anti-Semitism, there's this unity in the world. But if you look at how much we've transformed the world directly and indirectly, I started out this whole thing by quoting Ben-Gurion, a Jew who doesn't believe in miracles is not a realist. And we have so transformed the world. And the fact that you and I are having this conversation in the year, you know, 2022, and still around in the world as Jews is living proof of the supernatural. So you got to have the big picture and then you see that anything is possible. The mission is great, but uh, it definitely can be accomplished if we have some Jewish unity and some Jewish proactivity. And that's what we really, really need. Rabbi Ken Spiro, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure.